I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. It's something we think about every day. What should I eat? Much of the time, the question revolves around one's desire at the moment. Heavy food or light? Full meal or quick snack? Healthy or not so much? It's also a question that Dr. Walter Willett thinks about every day, but chances are he thinks about it much differently, certainly more rigorously, than most of the rest of us. And he began thinking about it before the topic became fashionable. That's because Dr. Willett is a global leader and one of the first scientists who focuses on the intersection of diet, lifestyle, and health. His research has influenced numerous health recommendations and continues to inform preventative strategies for breast cancer. Among his current and ongoing work, one, examining the relation of dietary factors to risk of specific types of breast cancer, including tumors characterized by HER2 status, histology, and stage, allowing more powerful analyses than those conducted previously in which all forms of breast cancer were combined. Also, expanding the family history information in their data repository as the learnings gained from better understanding of familial risk has the potential to personalize preventative advice. And continuing ongoing studies of dietary and lifestyle factors to determine relationships between weight change, health status, physical activity, pregnancy, and mammographic density. If Dr. Willett's name sounds familiar, that's because you likely read one of his books, Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy, the Harvard Medical School Guide to Healthy Eating, which appeared on most bestseller lists. More background. Dr. Willett is a professor of epidemiology and nutrition and chairman of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's published over 1,500 articles primarily on lifestyle risk factors for heart disease and cancer, including the textbook Nutritional Epidemiology. He's the most cited nutritionist internationally and is among the five most cited persons in all fields of clinical science. He's a member of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences and the recipient of many national and international awards for his research. Dr. Willett also has been a BCRF investigator since 2001. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Walter Willett. Dr. Willett, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you, and glad to be with you. Before we get into the science, I'd love to ask you about timing, because you seem to have timed your career about as perfectly as anyone I've come across. I mean, your initial studies into diet, lifestyle, and disease began really in the 70s and early 80s, I guess, with the Nurses' Health Study 1 and various follow-ups and work before that, and obviously new studies in the decades since. But your work timed perfectly, as far as I can tell, with the explosion in our popular culture around those very topics, lifestyle, diet, and disease. So should we just cut to the end and go ahead and claim that you are personally responsible for this cultural phenomenon, or did it just so happen that your area of scientific research intersected perfectly with the times? Uh, It would be overstating it to say I'm responsible for the (laughs) uh, current interest. Uh, But in fact, I've been interested in food uh, since I was uh, under 10 years of age. Mm. And I learned how to milk a cow when I was four years of age. So uh, food's been part of my 
interest for a long time. I grew uh, vegetables to put myself through college and studied food science. I uh, went to medical school. So uh, I, I was fortunate in the sense that uh, all of these pieces of my background have proved to be very useful uh, when the interest emerged in diet and health. It, and was it kind of emerging? I mean, when you, I mean, you, you, you studied, as you said, food science. Was the, how strong was the research and kind of the general interest at that time as you were getting into it, into that intersection between, you know, what we eat and who we are, how we live and, and who we are? I mean, just bring, bring me back to that time a, a little bit. I mean, I, I, re, I realize I was being facetious and uh, hinting that perhaps you invented it, which, which <laughs> I, I know. But, but what, what were those times like? Well, uh, it, this really goes back, I think, to the 1960s uh, when there were some early, uh, very simple, crude kind of studies, uh, but that were important in stimulating research. They were what we call today ecological studies, mm. looking at rates of major diseases like breast cancer and heart disease in various countries around the world. And what those studies showed was that there were huge differences that were first really well documented in the 1960s. Uh, rates of heart disease uh, varied tenfold uh, across Northern Europe and Southern Europe and about eightfold for breast cancer between Japan and the United States. And then some other very simple but really uh, critically important studies showed that people moving from low-incidence countries like Japan, where breast cancer rates were very low, to the United States uh, eventually adopted, it took a generation or two, but eventually adopted rates of breast cancer and then heart disease that were really similar to European Americans living in the United States. So those really profound uh, basic observations fueled a, a lot of interest. Uh, people said, why? What is there about living in the United States or other Western countries that uh, leads to such high rates of heart disease and breast cancer and other conditions uh, uh, similar to, to those diseases? And that really, uh, that was, those data were emerging in the 1960s, 1970s, and um, then I went to medical school. I, during that time, got more interested. Uh, we were uh, faced with people with cancer and heart disease, and almost nobody was asking why someone had breast cancer, why someone had heart disease. And uh, that kind of question bothered me and got me interested in trying to understand the basic origins of these conditions. So uh, that, that this was a good time. And uh, I was fortunate that a lot of my background had prepared me to take on some of those very complicated, challenging questions. And what were the reactions in the scientific community when you started to ask why? First of all, there were some indicators that diet might be important, <clears throat> and that's because uh, there were correlations. If we looked across countries, uh, high, countries with higher fat intake did have higher rates of cancer and higher rates of cardiovascular disease. But uh, epidemiologists uh, in general knew that there could be other factors that were correlated with, say, fat intake that were the real causes or other aspects of diet, uh, smoking, physical, physical activity. And so we really had to look more deeply. 
uh, when we started to look at diet, uh, every the conventional wisdom was you can't study that within the United States population because everybody eats the same. Mm. But when we it didn't take us very long when we started collecting data, uh, we realized that not everybody ate the same. There were huge differences in people's diets, and therefore uh, we had an opportunity to identify the factors that might be important or not important for breast cancer and other conditions. Why are nutrition-based studies so challenging? Um, you just mentioned or hinted at one aspect of doing a study, which is um, focusing on self-reporting of, of what people eat. And maybe you didn't actually say self-reporting. You said when we, we discovered what, what folks eat. But um, there, there's a self-reporting component, or at least there was historically, um, but that has evolved. So t- take me through, you know, the, the science between, uh, behind, um, you know, nutrition-based studies, what made them historically challenging and what makes them potentially challenging today? Nutrition studies are challenging when we're looking at long-term consequences like uh, risk of breast cancer. And part of that is related to the origins of breast cancer and many other diseases themselves because these are diseases that uh, don't just pop up overnight. Uh, As we dig more deeply, we see that the origins of these diseases Excuse me, one second. We see that the origins of these diseases often are many decades before the condition is actually diagnosed. So, to understand the causes, we're going to have to do studies that last for many decades. Uh, uh, Second, diet itself is very complicated, that uh, probably no two people eat exactly the same diet. Uh, Mm. uh, We can look at it as on the basis of foods. Uh, we can look at it as nutrients, uh, and uh, these different dietary components are often correlated. They're usually correlated with each other, so pulling them apart is uh, challenging. Uh, there's also no simple biochemical test, blood test, for defining someone's diets. Uh, for example, um, just take something as extreme as sodium, that uh, the body regulates sodium intake very, very precisely. So the blood test tells us almost nothing about uh, sodium intake, even though we can measure sodium in the blood. So for many aspects of diet, we do need to rely, at least up until this point in time, primarily on individual reporting of what they ate. And um, one of the other challenges uh, to look, doing these kinds of studies was that people Paul would, uh, skeptics would say, well, I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. How can people possibly report what they ate? But um, the fact is we're not really interested in what someone ate for lunch yesterday. We're interested in what they usually eat over the longer term. And as we've uh, and studied this, we, can, we do see that people can report their intake reasonably well, uh, not perfectly, but reasonably well. Uh, for example, uh, some people were studying milk. That's been of great, uh, great interest. Uh, there are many people that have three to four glasses of milk a day. Others have none at all, and a lot of people in between. And uh, we can ask how often people have a glass of milk, and it's not very hard to separate people. Those people who have three or four glasses of milk a day can easily identify themselves, especially when we contrast them to people who eat, uh, consume almost no milk in their diet. And with standardized questionnaires, we found that people's report actually does correlate quite well with biomarkers of intake. For example, Mm. we can see that blood levels of carotenoids 
do correlate quite well with people's reported intake of fruits and vegetables that are high in carotenoids. So there, there are definitely challenges. There, there's no, there will never be a perfect study, uh, and we have to accept that. The, the perfect study would probably be to randomize uh, children when they're born to diet, say, high in uh, carrots or high in milk compared to low in milk and follow them for the rest of their life. And, of course, we can't really do that. And now we're even learning that the mother's diet is likely to be important as well. So we, uh, we're we not going to be able to do the perfect study, uh, uh, but we can look at pieces at a time and put the whole package together to see the, the, the picture, the total picture, uh, even though we can't do the, the perfect study. And uh, as we go on in time, that picture becomes clearer with bigger studies, longer follow-up, better measurements. Uh, the, the picture becomes sharper with time. So this is a long process. We've, we've learned a lot, actually, in the last uh, few decades, uh, information that we didn't have when we started off in the 1970s. Uh, but there's still, there's still many details to learn. It's remarkable how many hundreds of thousands of people you have, you and others, have been able to you know, follow. Might be you know a little bit too specific, but but have had as part of your studies for so many years. I mean, I guess I guess beginning with that nurses' health study, the first one, um, which I think I think launched in 1980 or certainly the very early 1980s. Um, the the range of of inputs on data that you and and other scientists and researchers must have um, it just seems you know it, it's kind of incredible. I, I want to ask you about uh, some of the specific work that you're doing around not just breast cancer but specific types of breast cancer. But to to get into that, um, perhaps the broadest question that I'm going to ask and and too broad, so um, forgive me, but I'm, I'm hoping to use it as a launching point into the you know the more specific studies. What would you characterize? What do we know about diet, lifestyle, and cancer? We have learned, first of all, that this is a long process, that uh, what you eat uh, today doesn't affect your cancer risk tomorrow. Uh, what you were eating as, a, uh, as an adolescent probably does affect breast cancer risk many years later, so we have to have long-term studies. Uh, we have uh, probably the single strongest finding to emerge is that overweight and especially weight gain during adult life is a major risk factor for many types of cancers. And I think a lot of people just take that as a matter of fact today. But 20 years ago, that actually wasn't appreciated. Uh, so that um, uh, actually uh, obesity and overweight are almost equal to smoking as a cause of cancer. Uh, when we look at a total population on an individual basis, we uh, that smoking is uh, definitely worse than being obese, but since we have many more people who are overweight and obese than we do people smoking today, that uh, the total number of cancers caused by overweight and obesity is actually about the same as the number caused by uh, smoking. Uh, we've also found that uh, some choice of foods uh, does make some difference for uh, cancer. Uh, the the poster child of nutritionists for many years has been uh, fruits and vegetables, and there was some clearly overstatement about the uh, potential benefit for cancer reduction of fruits and vegetables. But as data have come in, we have seen that particularly ER-negative breast cancer 
uh, is related to uh, associated with um, uh, lower intake of fruits and vegetables. So there is some payoff there, especially for some of the most aggressive forms of breast cancer. Uh, high consumption of uh, red meat at various times of life is related to several cancers. And um, even moderate alcohol consumption is related to breast cancer. Uh, that was uh, a finding that was very controversial when we reported it uh, back in the 1980s, but that's been confirmed in dozens and dozens of studies now and is an accepted uh, risk factor for cancer. So um, th- those, that's a quick overview of uh, some of the key findings that have emerged for cancer risk. Uh, and uh, overweight and obesity is clearly the, uh, the, the biggest part of the picture. Yeah, that's a pretty good answer to about the broadest question I could possibly ask. So <laughs> let me try to home in a, a little bit. Um, as I understand it, your work now will examine the relation of dietary factors to the risk of specific types of breast cancer. You've talked about this a little bit so far in the conversation, um, including tumors characterized by HER2 status, histi- histology, um, and stage. How does describe for me if you would the work that you are doing now, um, and how does this differ from your previous breast cancer work? For a long time, uh, we really consider breast cancer as one disease. Uh, early on, clinicians uh, did learn that different forms of breast cancer, mainly characterized by being estrogen receptor positive or negative, responded differently to treatments, and therefore the uh, treatments were personalized, we might say in today's language, to ER negative or versus ER positive. Uh, early on in our breast cancer studies, we didn't really have the chance to separate these forms of cancers because we didn't have enough cancers to, uh, to look at those separately. But as time has gone on in our studies, we now have, in fact, in our large cohort studies, almost 20,000 women have developed breast cancer. And we've been able to get uh, medical records with the receptor status uh, documented or we're now collecting tumor samples and actually analyzing themselves for receptor status and other tumor characteristics. And we do find that risk factors for estrogen receptor negative and estrogen receptor positive breast cancers are different. So it is really important to study these separately. Uh, And as time has gone on, of course, we've learned about other characteristics of uh, breast tumors. uh, And uh, we're essentially uh, characterizing our the cancers that develop in our uh, large studies by these other uh, features. And that uh, provides quite a bit more power to identify risk factors. Uh, If we lump them all together, we can miss some important relationships. And how will this research occur? What's the process? Do you leverage um, existing people and existing data uh, that are already in your cohorts and you are, will just look at that data differently or through different lenses or, you know, or do you need to build a new group or do you add a new group and compare that to a historical group? Kind of how, how, how will the research work for you or how is it working for you? For the most part, we're leveraging the information that's already available that we've been collecting since 1980. Uh, Since that time, we've enrolled uh, about 200,000 women. Uh, I should mention they're all registered nurses, and the the success of these studies really has been dependent on the incredible commitment to being in research on the part of these nurses. So almost 90% who are still alive are still participating almost 40 years later. So uh, as 
the information we have on diet and lifestyle and hormones and uh, physical activity, other lifestyle factors uh, that's in our computer and has been accumulating since 1980 is really invaluable. You can't buy that kind of information uh, when we want to look at types of breast cancer. So starting all over would be a, a very um, big step backward. We'd have to wait decades before we had the answers. So about uh, 20 years ago, we did ask, started, started asking women in our study for permission to get samples of their tumor, their breast tumors. And uh, we've been collecting those samples. Uh, in the early years, we were just uh, storing them. Uh, we now have tumor samples from about 9,000 participants. Mm. And uh, more recently, we've been uh, sampling each one of those tumors and making what we call uh, microarrays. So on a single slide, we can uh, put samples of several hundred breast tissues. And then we work with our collaborating pathologists who are experts um, in uh, essentially identifying characteristics of these tumors using a variety of methodologies, some analyzing DNA, some analyzing different proteins in the tumors. And that allows us to uh, identify the subtypes of breast cancer. Uh, we are also starting Nurses Health Study 3, uh, but information from that won't be available. Results won't be available for se several decades down the road. So we're uh, essentially uh, piecemealing uh, various birth cohorts of women over time to learn about these uh, important relationships. But the, the basic uh, um, process here is using a, a new technologies, applying the latest developments in uh, genetics, uh, metabolomics, uh, microbiome, uh, and uh, 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 pathology to tumor tissues that have been accumulating in our cohorts for several decades. Wow. And Nurses 3, will that, are, are, is that group the same initial age group as Nurses 2 and Nurses 1? I think that those were kind of in the age 20 to 32, was it, or 35, something in that zone for when the, the nurses came into the studies at the same for, for Nurses 3? In general, yes. Uh, one of the really important general findings we found for breast cancer is that uh, the origins are often in earlier life. And uh, in the nurses' health study, first nurses' health study in, in 1980, they were 34 years of age when we first collected uh -huh. dietary data. And uh, we wanted to look at younger years. So we started off um, as young as 25. And uh, that's been very helpful because we could uh, do two things. We could Enough of their mothers were alive. We could actually ask their mothers, and about 40,000 mothers responded to describe their pregnancy with the nurse who's in our study and uh, their breastfeeding characteristics, early life feeding uh, characteristics, uh, their weight gain during the pregnancy. So we do know a lot about our nurses, even when they were in utero. Uh, and then we could also, when they were still young, we could ask in retrospect about their diets during high school years, which we found to be particularly important. And one of the clues about that period of age was that in the American atomic bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima in Japan, if women experienced radiation exposure during those early years, uh, a few decades later, their breast cancer rates jumped up. Uh, but if they were over 40, there was almost no increase 
in breast cancer risk uh, when they were expo- due to radiation exposure. So it really did point to early life being important, and it's turning out that uh, what people eat, what uh, girls eat during high school, uh, does make an important difference in their future breast cancer risk. So that's why we've been going to earlier years. Uh, that's not to say that uh, the, everything is cast in stone. After those years, we still see that uh, changes in behavior, especially changes in weight, even up into the 50s and 60s can make an important difference in breast cancer risk. So we really need to look at the whole lifespan. So I could imagine somebody listening to this right now and saying, okay, doc, I've got a daughter. Uh, You know, she's a teenager. Um, You just said that early life and and early, you know, diet and lifestyle matters. Um, What should I tell her to do? Well, um, having had a, a couple of teenagers at one point in time, just telling them what to do maybe isn't the, well, it doesn't always produce well, the immediate responses we would like. No, it doesn't. In fact, the, the recommendation might be not that this is what I say to do, but this is what Dr. Willett says to do. So no, no one will – we'll all blame it on you. <laughs> right. Yes. Blame, blame your doc. Um, somebody else, that's for sure. But still, uh, uh, we should convey information to our, our kids uh, growing up. And uh, more important, we should provide to them uh, healthy choices and encourage them in every possible way that we can, including making them attractive and, and uh, interesting. Uh, as for the specifics, uh, we have seen uh, that high consumption of red meat uh, is related to higher risk and m- emphasizing more uh, plant bases of protein source uh, protein sources is related to lower risk. That higher intake of fruits and vegetables and whole grains is related to lower risk as well. In general, this does fit a Mediterranean-type dietary pattern that's got a lot of variety. Uh, is not vegan necessarily, but uh, emphasizes uh, more plant-based uh, protein sources uh, than animal-sourced foods. So that that's the, the general picture of what we're seeing. And as time goes on, we hopefully will yeah, be able to define some of those characteristics of a healthiest diet even even better. What about the relation uh, between diet and lifestyle and the survival from breast cancer? Until quite recently, we've been mainly focused on looking at uh, aspects of diet and lifestyle that could prevent breast cancer. But uh, now uh, with long follow-up after multiple decades in our cohorts, we've been able to look at aspects of diet after diagnosis of breast cancer and how that relates to survival from uh, this uh, serious disease. Uh, That's taken a long time because we, in our research, first want to have a diet before breast cancer, then someone develops breast cancer, then we collect the data after uh, diagnosis of breast cancer, what people eat, the physical activity and other information, and then we start follow-up looking at survival. And we know that uh, for breast cancer, the risk remains elevated for two or three decades at least after the diagnosis, and that does offer an opportunity to potentially modify our diet and, and uh, other lifestyle patterns. And uh, our, our information is just starting to emerge uh, from this follow-up looking at survival. We do see that an overall healthy dietary pattern, we might call it a Mediterranean dietary pattern, is related to better overall survival. And uh, right now we're actively looking in more detail at pieces of the diet and how they can be important in improving uh, uh, improving survival. Uh, we're hoping to have some pretty firm results over the next year or two uh, in that regard. Uh, this is quite an exciting new area, and um, I, I think we're going to have some answers.
and I don't know if this is this is just coming to me as I'm listening to you. So this may be a wrong way to think about it, but is there any? So when I think about smoking, I think okay, the correlation between as a lay person, the correlation between smoking and lung cancer has to be you know that that's got to be really strong. And, you know, obesity, you mentioned, and so obesity with heart disease or smoking with heart disease. I, I just, you know, I know, I, I think I know as a lay person from having read popular culture that, that there are, you know, there are things that one can do in one's life that really impacts those diseases, colon cancer, perhaps, and what we've, what I've heard about red meat. And if any of this is wrong, you'll, you'll correct me on my facts because I'm just going off of, you know, my, my general understanding. Where would breast cancer, is there any way to think about the, the strength, which may not be the right word, but the strength of the inputs into the negative effect of breast can breast cancer meaning i know that if i smoke you know the negative effects resulting in lung cancer has got to be pretty strong i don't know the, the science exactly but i know from life that that's got to be pretty strong is is the are the inputs dietary lifestyle can it be correlated as strongly with breast cancer or is it more complicated we don't know as much and um, if the the question is just kind of confused the issue totally, then then you know feel free to just set me straight. Breast cancer is definitely more complicated than uh, diabetes and heart disease in terms of the, the causal factors and how they operate over time. And uh, for example, for smoking and lung cancer, we can see if we eliminated uh, smoking, uh, we would reduce lung cancer by about uh, 90% from what it was a few decades ago. In fact, we've already made a lot of that reduction. So um, further reductions are not going to be as great since most people are not smoking now. Uh, and for heart disease, uh, we can have somebody smoking, they can cut their risk of heart disease by about two-thirds by not smoking. Uh, the relationships between risk factors and breast cancer are not nearly as strong. Uh, probably the strongest uh, lifestyle factor is weight gain during adult life in relation to breast cancer after menopause. And breast cancer, one of, just one of the examples why breast cancer is so complicated is that actually being overweight as a young child or adolescent is related to lower breast cancer risk, not higher breast cancer risk. Mm. And that is one of the reasons why a lot of women who are struck with breast cancer when they're 35 or 40 say, how can that be? I did everything right. And they're correct. Uh, they, this is a, an enigma. We have some clues about what that might be explaining that, but we still don't totally understand this uh, really unusual finding of breast cancer rates being lower with higher obesity. But weight gain during adult life uh, is related to breast cancer uh, after menopause. So it's that adult weight gain that's really important. And that is um, moderately strong. We see that women who uh, gain uh, quite a bit of weight can about double their risk of breast cancer after menopause uh, by doing that or conversely uh, avoiding that weight gain can uh, reduce the risk by about half compared to what it would have been with uh, gaining a lot of weight that's pretty typical in the United States. Um, and then we, when we start putting together uh, multiple risk factors, we can see, for example, that um, that weight gain uh, in, in combination with um, uh, use of hormones 
uh, explains about half of the breast cancer incidence or mortality in the United States. In other words, if uh, almost no women uh, used hormones after menopause and uh, did not gain weight, breast cancer rates would probably be about what half, about half of what they are. And interestingly enough, in Japan, uh, very few women have used hormones after menopause. And um, uh, quite amazingly, Japanese women on average do not gain weight during adult life. They, if anything, slightly reduce their weight during adult life. So the, the, those two variables explain about half the difference. So we're seeing some important pieces, but they're not as strong and they're more complicated than um, lifestyle factors in relation to um, lung cancer or cardiovascular disease. What role has BCRF played in your research? BCRF funding allowed us to start the uh, a cohort of about 25,000 offspring of our Nurses Health Study 2 when these, off, when these kids were uh, 10 to 14 years of age. And that's really still the largest cohort now of uh, adolescents who were enrolled during that period of life and where we have a lot of dietary and other data. Uh, that's, uh, these uh, children are now in their 30s, and we're, we're already being able to look at diet and benign breast disease, and uh, down the road we'll be able to look at breast cancer itself. So the NIH funding, it was just not, not uh, fit for that kind of study. They want answers within five years, but we know that long-term investments in research are really critical if we're going to understand the real origins of this disease. Uh, there are many other areas where uh, the BCR funding has been critical. It allowed us to start collection of mammograms from participants in our study, and that's a whole new direction that's opened up. Uh, actually, abnormal mammograms uh, are the uh, strongest risk factor we have, or one of the strongest risk factors we have for breast cancer, and uh, that's been an important uh, uh, aspect of our research. Um, we've been able to do pilot studies that in the longer run gave us, allowed us to get funding for um, NIH research. Uh, it's helped us develop the world's uh, really most comprehensive database on the biochemical constituents of foods that we update every four years. There's no other database in the world that, that has done that over a long period of time. Uh, so in, in many, many ways, uh, PCR funding has been uh, critical. Uh, but it's not just the funding uh, that PCRF um, uh, has brought us together. Uh, when I, and speaking of our whole uh, group of colleagues funded by the BCRF uh, that come from many different fields, uh, clinical areas, biochemists, uh, pathologists, uh, and many other areas, and uh, getting together, exchanging ideas has been an important part of the support BCRF has given. Uh, as well. And then finally, just the fact that there are so many people, uh, so many women out there who are actively uh, contributing to uh, research on breast cancer has been an inspiration for us that, that keeps us going, uh, working into the night, working weekends to uh, take on this really serious challenge. Uh, well, that's terrific. And uh, in, in that case, I ought to let you get back to work. Um, and thank you. Thank you for your time. And thank you uh, for the work that you have done over decades. My pleasure, and um, please convey my thanks to everybody who's helped to make this possible. That was my conversation with Dr. Walter Willett. My thanks to Dr. Willett for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.